Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. My guest today is Dr. Lori Klein, who's a board certified dermatologist in Orange County, California. And you've been there, I think, since 1989. Is that right? Right. Can you just tell us a little bit about your practice? Yes, I started my practice in 1990 in Laguna Niguel. I worked for someone else for a year before that in the area. And I've been running that practice for 31 years. I originally started out doing general dermatology, but as the evolution of cosmetics progressed, I progressed with it. And I was an early adopter of lasers and injectables before most other people who gave me a nice head start in the cosmetic industry. Yeah, I wasn't going to try to date you right out of the gate, but it's rare that we run into somebody who was around before cosmetic medicine was a thing. That old. <laughs> and so take us back in time a little bit. What were the first things that came to market that you started using in the practice for cosmetic? Well, I started right off the bat with sclerotherapy. That had been around a while, but was getting more popular. And collagen injections were around for a year or so when I finished my residency. So not a lot of people were doing it yet, but I started doing that pretty early on. And I think based on what I've seen about you so far and everything I read, you love trying new things and you're an early adopter of early adopters. I think you're pretty much way out there in front and you always have been. So I'm curious, a couple things. One is you worked for someone else for a year. Was that just to get going or did you realize very quickly that you didn't want to work for someone else? The second one. I, yeah. I wanted to work with someone else. I had no idea anything about the business of medicine, but I soon found out he did not either. And so I went ahead and made plans after about six months to open up my own practice. And it's not like Orange County is a, a place where competition doesn't exist. Was it like that in 1992? There was definitely competition, but not for cosmetics. For general dermatology, yes. I did do research and back then there was no internet, or at least it wasn't available to most people. Went to the library, found demographics for the different cities in Orange County and found a place where there was not that much competition and started in Laguna Niguel. I'm trying to picture you at the library. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> visual, <laughs> like looking in the, in the maps and the card catalog. And I don't know, what did we even have? At least I was around in 1990. I wasn't a child. (laughs) (laughs) So were you basically by yourself with what, one or two staff people back then? Yes, I started out with two staff people, a front office and a back office and myself. My front office also was a nurse. So she started doing lasers when lasers started to come out. The non-ablative lasers is what we started with, which was Cool Touch at the time. Right. That was a good name. They didn't know how much longevity their name would carry, you know, 20 or 30 years into the future. So there were just a handful of lasers. There was collagen. There was, what else did you say? There was um, sclerotherapy. And you've watched and witnessed this explosion over 30 years. And actually, you haven't just watched and witnessed it. You've kind of led it. So what do you suppose drove you to not just do these things, but also figure them out and teach them to others? I think it was just a gradual evolution. Because I was an early adopter, I didn't have instructions on how to do a lot of this. For instance, when I started injecting Botox, it wasn't approved yet for cosmetic. This was in the mid to late 90s. So we had to come up with our own strategies, our own protocols, and learn from 
our mistakes and what worked well. And so this just evolved with time. And when you're an early adopter, you become an expert before other people become experts. So it automatically gives you a head start. Matter of fact, speaking of Botox, when that first became known that it worked for cosmetic, right before it got approved for cosmetic, we were doing Botox parties. Now, there was no alcohol. These were done in an office, but it would group a whole bunch of people together where I would lecture and then inject people. They had to make a reservation. They got very popular. We were doing it every other week. And so I had a natural head start once it got approved because people knew where to go. Uh, I see. How did you even get your hands on it? Was it readily available or? Oh, yes. They were selling it. Just They didn't have as much restrictions then, I think, on off-label promotions back then. Yeah. And then were there other doctors you were sort of collaborating with or, or leaning on for information and best practices at the time? Not really. I felt like a silo at the time. You yeah. know, I was not really connected up with other cosmetic doctors. Yeah. That can be kind of a scary, lonely place if you're the only one. I don't know. I felt like a pioneer. <laughs> It was fun. You know, it's fun being an early adopter. You have to be somewhat of a risk taker. And I'm a very cautious risk taker and that has to be a safe procedure for me to start with it. I have to assume it's safe first, but then I love being on the cutting edge. Do you actually inject yourself? Oh, yes. I inject myself always with Botox and now Javeau, which is an Evolus product. And I have injected fillers in myself in areas that were comfortable for me to, and safe for me to inject. Some areas of the face aren't too risky for me because I can't get, look at it as easily as I can on a patient. So when you don't inject yourself, who helps you? I have some colleagues, cosmetic colleagues who help me. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure you all have an underground network of people you trust. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned Juvo. Are you particular to anyone companies, fillers, or toxins? How do you think about each company and their offerings and and how they fit into the treatment plans, not just for yourself, but for your patients? Good question. I mean, right now I'm mostly doing injectables. I let my staff do the lasers and some of the other procedures like cool sculpting. So I'm mostly injectable. So the companies I deal most directly with are Allergan, Galderma, and Ebolus. Allergan probably offers the most comprehensive offering of value-added services because they're so large. They've been doing cosmetic for so long. They really offer a lot of value to our practice besides offering a great product. I don't do as much Galderma, so I don't get much from them. But Javeau is from Evelis is an up-and-coming company, and they are definitely offering a lot of different value, mostly digital, and a lot of great customer service. And I only use products that are great. That's the most important thing. The second thing is the pricing and the value added services that they bring. So do you think that the medication itself or the ingredients are relatively the same? Are you in that camp that believes that they're all relatively effective as long as you use them correctly? Of all the toxins, Juveau is probably the closest to Botox that I've ever experienced, but there definitely are nuances. And some of the nuances, for instance, is I don't get any brow ptosis, at least not yet, with Javeau on the forehead for injecting off-label there, but I do get it occasionally with Botox. It seems to have a different, more localized effect, so it doesn't seem to maybe diffuse out as far where it doesn't affect as broadly the frontalis muscle, 
as Botox does. So it's a great one for people like myself who have a history of brow ptosis, even with a very, very light dose of Botox, because I can get better results with a little more product, but without getting the brow ptosis. That's interesting. Other than that, the crow's feet and the glabella areas are pretty similar. I don't see too much difference. But if someone wants a really smooth, frozen forehead, I think they'll like Botox better on the forehead. Let's flip it to the other side. Do you respond to patient demand? Like if a patient has a specific preference for a product, do you just go with that? Or do you try to change their mind? How often do they come in and ask for something by name? It's usually Botox that they ask for by name, hardly ever Dysport or Xeomin. So I don't carry those products. I don't particularly think they work as well for a good portion of people that I've tried them on. Dysport's okay, but it's still unknown in a lot of patients and it's not better in any. The only reason I decided to offer Javot in addition to Botox was because I tried it and most of the people who tried it either liked it the same or better, about 80%. So it's got to be a high percentage of people who like it at least as much and somewhat percent of the people who like it more than whatever the product is I'm currently using, which was Botox. That is why I also decided to add Javot to the products I was using. Now, to answer your question about requests from patients, because my patients pretty much were trained for many, many years, over 20 years of getting Botox, that's what they asked for. And new patients usually use Botox almost as a generic term. Sure. So I do discuss Javot as an alternative product. I tell them I use it and I like it, but it's up to them. And there is a little bit of a cost difference. So it's some people will go more for trying something new, something that I like, or something that costs a little bit less. It's, it's a slight price difference, not a major one. Or they might just go with the brand they know, the brand they trust, which is Botox. Makes sense. People just want to know what to expect. And I think it's, it's more important that they trust you than have a preference for one product over another. I think the most important thing is just you don't push them because if you push them towards something that they don't feel comfortable with, they may go find somebody else who will give them that. So I think it's important to give them a choice, especially if the products are equally good. But also it's an interesting way to find out who of your patients are early adopters versus late adopters or laggards. Yeah. Or if you're just completely indifferent like me and I just say, do whatever you think is best, which I also do to my hairdresser too, which doesn't always turn out great. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily with my forehead, it's been fine. (laughs) Okay. So let's go back to your career for a little bit. I love that you're an early adopter. I think that there's a lot of early adopters in cosmetic medicine, but there's some who are really unique. And I think you fall into this category. Is there something that goes way back in your upbringing or in your education that led you to be this way and so willing to try new things? I think I was always like that, Ava. I was always someone who took a little bit of a risk, started the first lemonade business on the block, who maybe branched out a little bit beyond what I knew to try something different hard to give you exact examples, but it's just my personality. I think also being a good business person helps because I could evaluate the product through the eyes of a clinician, but also through the eyes of a businesswoman and whether it was worth the value I was going to get out of it. Now I've made a few mistakes. I bought a few things that are still are gathering dust now in the closet, but most of the things I have purchased 
probably, as far as equipment goes, probably paid itself back within six months of purchasing it. I love the coat rack game. Can I guess what you have? Do you have a Vela shape? No. Well, I'll tell um, you what I do. I do have yeah, a tell me. ultra shape. I have an ultra shape. Oh, that one really hurt. And, a, um, and what was the one for acne? See, I don't use them now, so I forgot the name. Isolase. Yes, an isolase. Yeah. <laughs> and then a, um, well, Pelabave, we made our money back on that. We just don't use it much anymore. Vibroderm. Vibroderm. It's got paddles, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that wasn't that expensive. So those are, those are my main Edsels. Those are great. Okay. So as an early adopter, I expect that that particular characteristic of you has applied outside of medicine too. So can you tell us some of the things you've done away from work that might surprise us a little bit about you? Well, I'm going for my executive MBA right now. And you'd think at age 60, why would I be doing that? And I'm still practicing dermatology. But I've always wanted to learn something more in business. And I'm very good in business instinctually, but never educated in it. So right now, I'm sometimes question why I'm doing this because it's a lot of work, but I'm learning a lot. Do you find that you knew most everything that you're learning in your MBA program already? Or are there things you didn't know? I did not know most of what I'm learning now. I mean, it's finance, it's accounting, it's economics and statistics. And if I did learn a little of it in college, I forgot it already by now, like statistics. So that's all new. Right now I'm doing a marketing class, which is very interesting. And I find that I'm very good at answering the more qualitative questions, like how would you tell this company in a case study how to improve? And I can come up with great ideas. But as far as the way they want it quantitative, do things or look at things in a certain way with certain types of algorithms, that's new to me. So I have to learn that. Are you finding things in your MBA program that you're able to immediately apply to the practice? Yes. I think the microeconomics that I learned with supply and demand and pricing and trying to find that equivalent point where pricing and demand meet so that you don't have an oversupply or undersupply that is very useful. I haven't used it yet, but I plan on using it the next time I want to change a price on something. That's a really tough issue for every practice in America is knowing where to price stuff. And some companies will force you to use their pricing, right? Like I think Allergan has guidelines that you have to follow. Well, cool sculpting only. Cool sculpting does. That's what I was really thinking of. It's really challenging and people really want price transparency in the marketplace. But sometimes I think the reason we don't do it is because we are having such a hard time pricing things to begin with. And once you put a price out there, then you're sort of stuck with whatever you decided because you don't want patients coming in and saying, well, I saw it a month ago and it was X and why is it Y now? Yeah, I think you have to be careful. You don't want to drive the price down the way a lot of med spas do if they're not smart about it, because then it just is a race to the bottom. And you have to have that added value of being either a known expert like I am or some other kind of value like great customer service if you want to price it high. Otherwise, you have to figure out what is that price that you won't have people turning away, but will be also the kind of price that won't look like you're cheap because you're not as good. Yeah, there's a fine balance there. And I think that one of the biggest problems is the commoditization of certain things like toxins. 
So people are valuing it by the unit, not necessarily who they're going to. One of the biggest pieces of advice I would give anybody who is in this business is you have to make yourself known. You have to differentiate yourself for what you're giving to the patient besides the product. Because if it's just the product they're looking for, then you are no different than anyone else and they're going to buy by price. If you can make yourself either better, more qualified, sound better, better customer service, whatever you want to do, serve them cookies when they come in, but something that brings them in versus just the cost per unit of what you're selling. There's the experience for sure. There's also loyalty and there's ways to incentivize loyalty. Yes, absolutely. But they have to come to you in the first place and they have to like you. And you don't want to get the price shoppers. If you get the price shoppers, then those are the people you do not want to keep as your patients long-term and they won't because they're just going to go to the next group on sale. That's so true. The other wrench in this whole situation is the unit itself, not being a measurement that any human understands unless they're using it every day like you are. Us regular folks, especially if we've never had a treatment before, it could be hours upon hours of research just to figure out what a unit is. So then... Like you can imagine that there's all these people who get to the point where they know they want it and they just want to know how much is this going to cost me? And they're still given an answer that says, well, it depends how many units you need. Right. And some doctors get around that by charging per area. But I find in my community, Orange County, people are very savvy on how they're spending their money. And while they want quality, that's why they come to me. They also want to have transparency in price. And if you are just by area and you don't know how much you're getting, or if you're just going to say, well, we don't know until we see you, then the patients may turn away and never come in in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging. And I feel certain pretty often that it was intentionally set up to be challenging (laughs) by some really smart person who probably already has their MBA. (laughs) I'm just guessing. (laughs) You're very well established in your market. I feel like I knew who you were even when I started in 2003 because you were already so far ahead of everybody else. And I was, you know, like you with your devices and the treatments that were hitting the market. There were also no doctor websites. And and I was at the beginning of that process of inventing how we would do internet marketing in this space. So I've been familiar with your work for a really long time. How did you think about marketing kind of in the early days and maybe give us an idea of how you've changed your thinking about it over 20 years? I think if I wasn't in medicine, I'd probably be in marketing. I love marketing. I love advertising. It's natural for me, as I was mentioning earlier. And it seems that because I am my customer, my patients are very similar to me. Same age group, although younger, of course, now also and older, but the same kind of person who wants to look better, wants to feel good about themselves. So I designed advertising based on what would appeal to me. And it just seems to work. So I was an early adopter of websites. I think it was back in 1998 that I started my website, skinone.com. Unfortunately, people thought that it was a porno site because skin.com was a porno site. I later sold it for a nice amount of money to a company that was selling products on the internet that wanted that name because they had called their company, I think, that name and changed to OC Dermatology at the time. (laughs) But I loved the idea of the internet. Most people weren't even going on it to search for businesses. There was no Yelp or any of that. Did you build your first website yourself? I had somebody, of course, help me. I 
I've never bothered to learn how to do that. There's only so much I can learn. But I always liked advertising. I was one of the first doctors in the area advertising in the local newspaper. So the Laguna Niguel News. And that was great for a while. I had, of course, yellow page ads. At that time, mostly plastic surgeons had these big ads and the dermatologists would just have tiny little in-column ads or just mentioning their offices. So people weren't really advertising much yet. And that helped me grow my practice faster. How have you changed your thinking about marketing? I mean, obviously you stopped doing the yellow pages. Well, the evolution was very interesting. So with yellow pages, for instance, had my ads and every year they'd come back and want me to do bigger ads. And then all of a sudden they had something called internet yellow pages and they wanted me to advertise on that. And of course that was inexpensive in the beginning because people weren't doing it yet. So I figured, well, I have to be there too. So I advertised that. That got bigger and bigger and more and more expensive until at some point everybody was doing both. They were doing the books, which everyone was still delivering at people's doorsteps and they were doing the internet. And at some point I said, you know what? I don't think people are looking at these books anymore. I'm going to stop doing that. And that was at the time when people were still stuck on advertising in the books. At least a lot of people were. So I stopped doing that. They tried to talk me out of it. I said, no, no, no. We'll just do internet from this point on. And that's what we did. Of course, the yellow pages never really went very far. It became search engine optimization, getting your people to find you through Google pretty quickly. And so I stopped advertising with that also. But I was always looking for new ways to advertise, you know, to optimize the website. And I went through a lot of different website companies to help redesign the website, make it better, make better optimization. Unfortunately, there's a lot of mediocre companies out there. I have a friend who calls them the tallest of the short men. (laughs) And I come back to that over and over again. It's very, very, very difficult now to find a good one. If they do a good job, they're very expensive, but then everything changes the Google algorithms change and they have to change or you're not getting the hits anymore. I haven't really been a big proponent of pay-per-click because I wanted people to find me for me, not just because an ad popped up and I knew they knew it was an ad. So that was not very appealing to me. No, me either. And it's very hard to draw a connection between someone clicking on an ad and then also being an intelligent, high-value patient because... Who clicks on those ads? Like, I just can't get my head around that either. There are really good ways to use it. And I've seen some people be successful, but it's very, very few and far between. And it requires daily management, which is the other big problem with Google ads, is that unless somebody's watching it all the time, Google will steal your money right out from under you by trying to help. And I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) One thing I'm proud about, though, is I built my practice and my reputation solely by my own work, not because I was on TV or lecturing. I didn't build my reputation based on that. I built it by the quality of my work and by how busy my practice was and grew. Mm -hmm. That's the right way to do it. And then the other things are an outcome of that. When you take great care of patients, then there's something to lecture about. Oh, yes. And I do lecture and I am sometimes on in the media, but that's not my main core focus. My core focus is taking care of patients and making them happy. Can you recall any marketing that was like truly a flop where you turned around and said, I really shouldn't have done that one? Oh, yeah. There are some flops, very expensive flops. One was, I don't want to put down a magazine. But the OC magazine was very expensive, and I don't think I got very much out of that. 
that's very much a lifestyle magazine. It has a lot of furniture and yes. high-end like luxury stores, things like that in it. Luxury homes. Yes. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm sure there's others. I'm trying to think because I haven't advertised like that in a while. Oh, it's nice when you get to the point where you don't have to. I think when I've invested in some contracts with websites to develop my website that didn't do a very good job. Yeah. Those are really hard. They can uh, put anything in a proposal that sounds like what you need. And then if they fail to deliver, you have a very hard time proving that they did or didn't do what was in that contract. Yeah. You know, I've done different things. One was I worked with a company that made videos of me. This is before people really videoed themselves that much. This is probably going about seven, eight years. And they interviewed me, videotaped it. I owned the video. I could post it. Originally, they were having it on their site, but it never drew any business to me. But I did get value out of it because the videos are still on my site. I play them sometimes in my office. And it was a great way to accumulate a lot of video material. Yeah. That's nice that you were able to dual purpose it. That's unusual also. So that was a good outcome anyway. Have you gotten on the social media bandwagon at all? I kind of dragged my feet on social media because in the beginning they were touting Facebook and Facebook ended up not being that great for most companies. Yes, you know, there is some value in it, but it was a lot of work for a very little bit of business for medical offices and cosmetic offices. I personally think it's a waste of time for people to look at Facebook. So I avoid Facebook like the plague, but I do have a site for my practice and my staff do post on there, but I don't go on there. Instagram, similar. Twitter, similar. I like LinkedIn because I like business. And so I do check out LinkedIn once in a while and post things there. I think you have to be on social media. There's absolutely no way around it. I'm just glad that it's not crucial for me to build my practice. And my practice has already grown to the point where it can self-sustain through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So I think you mentioned to me that you sold the practice three years ago. How much control do you still have over your day-to-day? And what does it mean that you sold it, practically speaking? I'm very lucky because the group that purchased me, West Dermatology, really gave me a lot of leeway to continue being medical director and running the practice the way I wanted to. I was not planning on retiring. I was just taking advantage of the private equity companies purchasing dermatology practices. And I believe that if you're not early for dinner, you're going to be on the menu. (laughs) So... I was at that point in my career that I knew I probably was going to retire in five to 10 years. And I was sort of at the point where I didn't want to grow it anymore. I didn't want to put the energy into that. I just wanted to keep doing what I was doing, seeing patients. And I was a little bit tired of running it myself. So it worked out really well. I'm very happy with them. There's a few things that create a little bit more stress, like trying to buy capital equipment has to be approved and it's not easy to get that approved. But with COVID-19 right now, I feel very lucky that I don't have the overhead myself that I don't know if I could afford. $25,000 a month rent. We have a very large facility. You know, all the staff people. I would hate to be the person who's putting them on furlough right now. Instead, you know, I just watch it happen. But it's sad and it's stressful and I'm glad I don't have that stress. So they they just kind of de-risked the whole process of being in business for you for a little while. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure they're going to make money in the long run. And I made 
more money in the short run, but you have to have some kind of exit strategy. And in medicine, it's very hard. Now, dermatology practices, because they do so many different things, and they also are insurance-based in many cases, they are more of a target, a positive target for private equity than a single plastic surgeon's office would be because when that plastic surgeon's gone, there's not much there unless he has a very well-run med spa. But these private equities are looking for things that are insurance-based. I think they look at it as a hedge against recessions and the economy crashing. I'm probably very surprised right now that that's not even a very good hedge at the moment with COVID-19. Probably. So your practice still has a medical derm component to it. Yes, I do very little. My physician assistant does all medical derm. Mm-hmm. And I have another doctor who works and does medical derm as well as some cosmetic. And then those two, the PA and the other doctor, they refer cosmetic to you? Um, the PA does. The other doctor likes to do it herself. She doesn't have very much experience yet, but she wants to get more experience. She's in a good place to get that. So really it was a matter of you were going to sell the practice when you retired, but you just decided you were going to sell it to West earlier? Well, I didn't think I could sell when I retired. Most people, when they retire, most dermatologists just close their practices or sell it for barely anything because usually you are the practice and without you, the practice loses most of its value. Yeah. And I knew that I'd get a higher EBITDA, which is expenses before income depreciation and amortization. I'd get a higher multiple of that if I sold while I was still going to be there for a while and contributing to the practice. Makes a lot of sense. I've been involved in very small pieces of that valuing the practice process before it gets sold, in particular, valuing the website and the assets that exist online. And that's always been really interesting because people way overvalue what they think their web stuff is worth. Yes. I think you just have to look at your income and they have to pick a multiple of that and that's what you get. One of the things I forgot to mention that was also a benefit is they let me keep my branding. When people found out I sold my practice indirectly through word of mouth, they thought I retired. Oh no. And some of the competitors in my community were very eager to pass that word around that I had sold my practice and that they think I might be retiring because of that. So patients started telling me this. And I'm very glad to say that most of my patients still to this day, three years later, do not know I sold my practice because we kept our branding. I'm still the medical director. And being part of Western Dermatology is great, but it would not add to the prestige of a cosmetic dermatology practice. So if we suddenly became West Dermatology and we're no longer OC Dermatology, we would not draw in the cosmetic patients because we would lose the reputation of the brand. Right. So it was clearly in their best interest to let you stay the way you were. Yes. Yes. Okay. So how many years do you think you'll keep going? I love what I do. I foresee myself working to age 70, maybe I'm 60 now, but get going more part-time as I got older. So right now I work like four days a week, three and a half, four. I take a lot of vacation. I plan on taking more vacations and working less days as I get closer to 70. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there anything on the horizon? Like, have you figured out what you're going to do when you're done with your MBA? That's a good question. I would love to consult more with pharma companies, aesthetic pharma companies. I do that on the side a little bit now. And I feel I can offer them more from a marketing approach because marketing is my wheelhouse if I have an MBA behind it. Maybe consulting with practices on how to run their practices. I'm not looking for a a big full-time job. I'm just looking for something fun to do on the side that I enjoy. 
I'll keep an ear out for you. (laughs) Thanks. There's a question that we ask everyone on this podcast. We like to wrap it up by asking, what is your unique superpower? My unique superpower is being able to look at someone's face and immediately instinctually know where I need to treat them to make their face look better. I don't have to analyze or measure or do anything like that. I just feel it. And that's why I think that I've been very successful with fillers especially, but also toxins. I would add that that superpower in combination with your willingness to to be an early adopter and take risks, that's the other part of that equation that's made you so successful. I think the other thing that's helped me be successful is I enjoy people and I really have fun seeing my patients and I hope I make them each feel that they're very important to me. And I think it's that combination of talent with great customer relations and the feeling that they know that I'm there for them. I'm very transparent also about pricing and everything. They really trust me. That helps me be successful. I agree. And I thank you for sharing your stories with us today. Thank you for having me, Ava. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.